0: He's going to get you, he's going
1: to get
0: you, he's going to get get you, you. boogeyman is coming. Welcome to this week's episode of Daily Horror Habit, the podcast for horror obsessives. I'm your host, Jay Krieger, bringing you horror movie discussions every Friday for your twisted pleasure. And as always be warned, these discussions may include spoilers. For this week's episode, I'm finally diving into one of my most anticipated films of the year, that being David Bruckner's Resurrection of Hellraiser. Odd, considering I'm not especially well-versed in the franchise's plethora of sequels, yet when you say David Bruckner is steering the ship, well, I don't need to hear much more to get these horror juices flowing. Anyways, Bruckner's Hellraiser reboot is the 11th film in the franchise, and this installment follows Riley, played by Odessa Azion, a young woman struggling with addiction who comes into possession of Lemonchard's Box, which summons the multidimensional beings of pleasure and pain known as the Cenobites, this time led by the priest, played by Jamie Clayton. Now, Riley and her friends must find her brother while avoiding the Cenobites' gifts imagine massive air quotes around the word gifts, Enough of my ramblings as I'm thrilled to once again be joined by a returning friend of the show and contributor to the likes of Fangoria, Bloody Disgusting, Manor Vellum, Rue Morgue, and more. Please join me in giving a warm welcome once again to Pat Brennan. Pat, welcome back to the show, man. It's great to be back. I am also thrilled.
1: This is is always the highlight of whatever week that this falls on. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And uh, yeah, I love talking to you.
0: Well, I appreciate that. And I think it's indicative, you know, of us enjoying talking about film and whatnot so much that we chatted for like an hour before we started recording (laughs) this. Um, So yeah, it's always nice to catch up with you, whether it's, you know, about life or horror films. Um, But I guess, you know, in terms of Hellraiser, um, as I said, I'm not incredibly well-versed in Hellraiser or the universe. Within the last year, I read The Hellbound Heart for the first time. Hmm. I had, of course, seen Clive Barker's original film, Um, And then most recently i had seen Hellraiser Judgment, which was like the one that came out before this, uh, which is of the (laughs) the DV, the DTV fair. Um, So I myself am not incredibly well versed in Hellraiser, uh, but I'm curious for you, like what was your initial introduction to Hellraiser and would you consider yourself a fan of the franchise?
1: It's weird. I'm definitely a fan of the franchise, but I've only seen like, I don't know, one quarter of the movies that. That make up the franchise um i'm a huge clive barker fan my introduction to the the franchise was uh being a little kid and going to the video store and seeing the the cover of um of the original hellraiser which is one of my all-time favorite posters there's just something so absolutely striking um with the design of, of pinhead and just the sneer he has and the the kind of uh desolation behind him in the background and he's holding that the box towards you and that tagline, uh, they'll tear your soul apart. <laughs> um, I think was one of them. And I, others might've had, uh, what was it? Angels, angels for some demons to others. Like it just, it scared the living shit out of me as a, as a kid when I would see that cover. And I, I um, it took years for me to finally get up enough courage to watch the movie And then I did, and then it was this whole other experience because if you're just going by the cover, you're expecting it to be your standard slasher film with this cool-looking bad guy, and then it turns into this, like, complete, like, mindfuck, this, like, psychosexual experience where where you've got, you know, you've got Frank and um, and, uh, just this (laughs) creepy, grimy... Story that doesn't even touch on the Cenobites until like later on. I mean, I guess it touches on at the beginning when you see Frank get torn apart, but anyway, I'm digressing. Um
0: (laughs) No, you're good. I think also, like, so a couple of the things that you just said really stand out to me about Hellraiser, right? I think that initially when I watched this at an age that was probably far too young. I was disappointed because I was under the impression it was yet another 80 slasher franchise, which it is clearly not. You know, upon revisiting the original one several times, and even uh, seeing the second film, or like to classify the core films, which I'll refer to as you know the first two, maybe the third, which I haven't seen, but I, I'm, my understanding is that at least the first four films were like theatrical, right? Before it kind of digressed into this DTV fare that basically seems like it was just cashing terrible. in on the name Hellraiser. All shot
1: in Bulgaria. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> exactly. Um, but I think that, you know, in revisiting the original as an adult, I'm able to be appreciative of the fact that it is, while dabbling in body horror, it's more almost like a, um, a noir, right? Yeah. A noir that has this psychosexual thing that almost kind of, I would say, feels along the lines of like a, Brian De Palma film almost or something along those lines where it is this thing that, you know, is dabbling in the seedier side of either people or just situations. uh, But at the same time, like relationships are at the core of that film um, in a way that I didn't, you know, grasp as a child when I saw this. Uh, But as an adult, I had, you know, a greater appreciation for the fact that it subverts that sort of 80s slasher identity that – I think everybody assumes just based off of that box art, like you said. Like I had a similar experience as a kid, wandering down the aisles of uh, Suncoast Video and seeing that, and just being like absolutely terrified mm-hmm. and just confounded at what I was even looking at. Um, well, and it's so interesting
1: how like you could just remove all the the stuff involving the Cenobites and that lore, and just have a perfectly amazing film involving. You know Frank and his, um, yeah, and all now the characters escaping. My name Julie, that's the name of the mom. Uh, Yeah, Um, and their relationship, and that kind of uh, the way it kind of sucks everybody in in the house and stuff. It's, and it's such a confident directorial debut from someone who you know could do it all. Like Clive Barker, it's. He's so goddamn talented. Like, yeah. Anyway, but yeah. I Um. So the second film I really love as well. Um, Hellbound is 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 a lot of fun. Um, I I start to like I wobble a little bit at uh, Hell on Earth uh, Part Three. I, I rewatched that recently, and I don't know, man. It's. Uh, <laughs> It's a little rough for me. Um, there's some, you know, fun aspects to it, but that's, I think, when uh, Pinhead really kind of derails a little bit in terms of the scariness of the character. Um, and part four is pretty good, you know, Pinheaded in space, but that's kind of where I stopped. I was a big fan of um, the Hellbound Heart and a lot of other um, uh, writings by Clive Barker. Um, the The comic series there's um, there's been a few um, kind of comic adaptations. Um, there's in particular there's uh, an anthology that I thought was just like the perfect, um, the perfect way to would have been the perfect way to continue the films um, as a as a whole, where it, the the anthology series followed the kind of the exploits of the box as it went from person to person. Um, yeah. So yeah, I've, I'm definitely a Hellraiser fan um not so much of a fan that i'll bother to sit through anything past inferno Uh, (laughs) except for this
0: (laughs) this remake um yeah i bought the uh there's like a dvd collection that has six of those movies Uh, i think it's from three onwards um, but I haven't mustered up the courage yet to dive into that yet, but it's probably the type of thing that if I have some, you know, like-minded horror f- fans, uh, over the house one night or something, uh, and we need a laugh, maybe I'll dive into some of those later ones. But yeah, you know, I think Hellraiser, the original film and, you know, Hellbound as well, um, those films stand out to me a lot because I remember, and you know, again, part of it was coming to the original as a kid, far too young. And just how uncomfortable that movie is to watch for me, you know, granted as a kid watching it, the sort of uh, the sexual exploits of the characters and those things like went over my head. But the way in which they're portrayed and displayed, you know, that the there's a griminess to the characters and to the world that really has stuck with me, even as an adult. Right. I think that going back. And rewatching those first two films, they're very uncomfortable films, and it's not just again because of, you know, the sexual deviance or exploits of specific characters, but it's more so just the way in which Clive Barker doesn't shy away from the taboo, right? I think even in terms of the depiction of the Cenobites, right? The fact that they are in this like BDSM attire and things like that, right? For the time and it has withstood the test of time just in the sense that the film feels very unflinching in its showing audiences subject matter that you were probably not accustomed to in that time period. And I think the fact that he's able to make those elements of the film that aren't just tied to individual scenes, but maybe the entire construction or the aura of the film, if you will, uh, if that's not, you know, too pretentious to say, it's something that makes the film as a whole feel very unique and feel like a standout. Um, You know, I I talk about or I asked you, like, oh, are you a fan of the franchise? When I think really that question is, are you a fan of the universe of Hellraiser that's probably best represented in those first two films? Um, And I think that that's a testament again to how strong those two films are because I would say I'm a fan of the Hellraiser franchise, even if I could only recommend three out of whatever 11 or 12 movies there are in the series at this point. Um, But I guess in building off of that, you're a fan of Hellraiser, you're a fan of Pinhead, are you a fan of David Bruckner? Are you familiar with you know his previous films? Um, and if so, you know what do you think is a standout talent of his as a filmmaker?
1: Um, I mean honestly, I the only film of his I saw previous to to Hellraiser was um, the Night House. Um, I I actually I think I might have watched it like the week before Hellraiser dropped because I was playing catch up as I always. Seem to be doing now that I am a Father. father. <laughs> um, but uh, the, the thing that really struck me in that film, I mean, he does a lot of. Uh, he doesn't take he takes a lot of like common tropes. In that case, it was, uh, you know, the haunted house film and and he kind of tweaks it just a little bit to feel fresh. Or just enough to feel to feel fresh and um, kind of keep people who are familiar with those those elements um, guessing throughout the film. But I think he also something I I really appreciated about the Night House was um, he really nailed because that movie is so much an, an exploration of of grief um, and understanding. Trying to understand um the relationships that we have with people after they're gone. Like try like after after you lose someone, you kind of you have this distance from them and you start to um wonder about your own memories of them in a way. Um and he really nails that in that movie. Um so like I guess. From like a psychological standpoint and from an emotional standpoint he he, he was doing some really interesting things in, in that movie um and i guess I, i'm trying to think of like i don't since i've only seen what well two things of his now i don't know if that's a common um trait of his of his directing and and writing and the storytelling in general um i feel like he kind of wanted to do a bit more of that in, in this um iteration
0: of hellraiser and didn't necessarily maybe get the chance to do that. Um, I'll say as a fan of his work and I've seen both this and the ritual, um, which I definitely oh, recommend he did the ritual? you. It's on,
1: yeah. He did the oh, ritual shit. as well. Well, yeah. Well that, okay. So yeah, that does, that does solidify it. <laughs>
0: yeah. I was going to say, if you hadn't seen that, like the ritual is a very different type of film in it's um, in its purpose and in its intent in its construction, but it does explore grief in a way that is very similar to the Nighthouse, and that he captures a quality that it. I would almost compare it to you know what I was giving Barker praise for a minute ago, where I think that Bruckner is able to attack those topics, and you know those are very taboo topics still, like right dealing with grief, depression, uh, and those things, and yet he portrays them and tackles them in a way that feels very raw. Right. I think, you know, specifically in The Night House, one of the scariest moments of that movie is when you see Rebecca Hall's character at work after, you know, she's had the service for her husband um, who is uh, committed suicide. And, you know, she's staring at the clock. She's and then she realizes, like, oh, it's almost time to go home. And she looks down at her computer and she's just been Googling handguns. And it's like that right there is one of the most depressing and dark moments of that movie because it just shows like how that grief can really you know strike somebody to their core and it just to the point they don't even realize it right and it's almost as if they're in a dream like state where they're doing things that they don't necessarily remember yeah. grief um, and depression and I think-
1: that yeah that that was that felt like
0: such a i had a, i had over the
1: summer i um i suffer from depression um and uh I ended up going on medication this summer finally because um to kind of combat it and there was this moment before I went on my medication where I was um, in a particular particularly low dip um in a in a depressive episode and um I was like I was at work I worked in a, in a library and I was unlocking a bunch of study rooms that were at like the, the top of this five story building and um, I opened one of the study rooms and I'm and I was just looking out across the um, kind of the horizon as the sun was coming up, and I was like, "That's a really nice view." And then there was this intrusive thought that that popped out of nowhere that was like, "I wonder how quickly I can get that window open." And it was scary as fuck. Like I've never, I've, I. This is getting, I guess, kind of dark, but like, um, I've never, like suffered from suicidal thoughts before and the way that just kind of like just just crept in so stealthily was it just it startled me to my core and that scene in that movie feels so true to life to like to anyone who you know has has ever had something like that happen and the same goes for I think what there's he gets these little details um he he so perfectly there's this moment right after um it's right at the beginning, and she um the main character is like saying goodbye to her mother-in-law, who is, you know, you know, saying if there's anything we can do to help, et cetera, et cetera, give us a call. And she walks in and she's got this casserole because anytime you lose somebody, there's always like people always want to give you food and stuff. Um, it's just something that humans do, and uh and she walks in and she opens the garbage can under the sink and drops the casserole in. Um, Cause that's what you want to do. Right. Like it's, and then in the next scene, she's eating the casserole out of, out of the container while on the couch. And it just felt like such a, like he, he really, he just captures the humanity of that, that moment so well where you, you just, uh, you need to, there's like a rage underneath the grief and you need to lash out at something, even if it's something, someone or something that's trying to help, you know what I mean? Or is supposed to be there for comfort. Anyway, that's (laughs) sorry. That, that kind of got really, uh,
0: please. I think that that is, you know, that's a, a testimony to the fact that he's able to get certain details that, you know, are, I, I found that I've shown enough people that movie and, you know, even somebody that, That has been on the podcast before, my friend Kate, who we covered that film actually together. And, you know, she works in um, mental health services and she talked a lot about how that film really does nail certain aspects along the lines of what you had been saying. And I agree with as well. Um, But even showing it to my buddies that didn't know anything about it, the one thing that they said amongst, you know, they, they were surprised by how much they enjoyed the movie, but they talked a lot about like how uncomfortable the movie is. And how that could be very believable um, in terms of the depiction of mental health uh, and things like that. So, I think that it's a testament to Bruckner as a filmmaker, and it's why I was so excited for Hellraiser, even if I'm not a massive Hellraiser fan. I was excited that he was going to be the one to reboot it because I'm aware I'm have enjoyed his tackling tab- taboo subject matter surrounding things like grief and mental health and struggles and these things. And using the vessel of horror to tell those stories in ways that don't feel exploitative, if anything, it feels like a safe space to explore those things with um, for the masses, right? Um, and I think that – I guess I always like to lead with like the elements of films that I appreciate the most, but I think that with Hellraiser, his reboot, that's the one thing that is devoid of the most of those three films is that this doesn't feel like a film that he was allowed to – tackle certain subject matter with the same rawness that he has in those other films. And it was equally surprising when I found out that the two writers, Ben Collins and Luke um, Trowski, uh, they both were writers on The Night House. And Mm. yet, this is a film that presents its protagonist, Riley, as being somebody that is struggling with addiction. And yet, I found overall that this movie largely lacks the sort of raw, upfront, genuine tackling of taboo subject matter the same way that those other movies did. Um, how did you find sort of Riley and her struggle, you know, pre Cenobites? So this is all very
1: complicated because one of the, so one of the things I really love about, um, kind of the Hellraiser universe and something that I relate to a lot with it is that it's all about obsession. Um, like the lament configuration, people who are drawn to that are are people who have the type of personality that can't stop falling down rabbit holes towards things. You know what I mean? Um, Be it addiction um, or just kind of obsessive personality types. Um, And like, I mean, I guess not to get, too personal again, although I'm going to get completely personal. Um, those types of themes have always like attracted me because I had that type of personality. I'm, I'm uh, like, I'm, I'm an alcoholic. I've been sober for three years. And so addiction is something that has been a thing that I've dealt with quite, um, <laughs> quite extensively. Um. So what I love about, the Hellraiser kind of mythos is that it's, it's this thing where it's not, it's not um, necessarily some evil on the outside that's destroying you, even though it eventually, it's, you know, it eventually is, but it's, it's something that you're inviting within to yourself. You know, it's, um it's something that I don't know if any of the movies, even, even the first one have, have really uh, done justice to this idea that the, the box is something that, you become transfixed with and it's not something you just open after tinkering with for like an hour or two, like it's something that you obsess with or obsess over um, over the course of weeks or months. And that like takes stuff out of you as you, as you just pour yourself into it to try and open it and find out what, you know, what is inside. Um, And that's that's the thing that i can't i can't i can't decide i i I really like this movie and i don't understand why i like it as much as i do because i feel like in in a lot of ways it it completely misses the boat in terms of um the main character and her struggles of addiction because there's there's for the most part it just i don't (laughs) it just doesn't feel like she's actually struggling there's one moment that felt very true very true to life where she um she has a, she relapses and she um, finds her old pill bottle and first she throws the pills away and then um she has that like moment that a lot of people who deal with addiction um have experienced where it's you dehumanize yourself um to get whatever your your fix is and in this case she like she you know drops down to her hands and knees and starts, grabbing all the pills that she threw on the ground and uh, like out of the dirt and out of the muddy water and stuff. And, and um, that felt uh, very real and uncomfortable, but that was the only moment. And it's not even like, like it's obvious that the box almost chooses her when they, they first kind of find it, even though it Mm -hmm. wasn't really, but you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. But considering the uh, Bruckner's body of work, I would have thought that that would have been examined a lot more closely and and a lot more honestly than it than it was. And I don't know if that's the baggage that comes with tackling such an iconic franchise that has a such a distinctive um, visual aesthetic and and style to it and being preoccupied with trying to not rehash that and attempting to make it your own you know what i mean and then maybe that's why aspects of the story kind of fell by the wayside i don't know it's 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 so it's so funny the more i watch this movie the more i like it but the more i'm disappointed with a like fundamental aspect of it, which is that, that narrative.
0: Well, that's the thing, right? I think that I've now seen this three times and I like it just like you. I like it more every time I watch it at the same time. And we are anybody listening, trust me, we are going to get to the parts of this film that we enjoy, but I think that this is the, the human element of this is the weakest part for me. And It's not only just that, you know, he's proven in the past and, you know, specifically with the writers that are attached to this project, that creative trio have proven that they can tell very raw stories about struggles with a variety of, you know, viewed as taboo subject matter. Um, In this, though, you know, I have viewed a lot of this film from the human side as being a little too sanitized. Um, And, you know, this movie lacks even for that one moment that you mentioned, which is definitely uncomfortable, where she's looking at these pills that have been in the mud and she's basically like brushing off the mud, but barely just enough that like she can justify taking it still. Right. Um, But at the same time, like the depiction of addiction in this, again, feels a little too sanitized. She's got too much of her life. It feels the relationships. It still feels like they are still intact. Right. And I'm not saying that I need to see like like the bottom of the barrel sort of thing, right? I'm not saying that I need to have a lot of scenes of her relapsing or anything like that. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't need to be train spotting, but I feel that if it's going to be a story of addiction, it needs to capture that core feeling of like an uncomfortable sense the entire film that was so prevalent in the original Hellraiser. Um, you know, even The sort of trajectory of her relationships with people in her life, specifically, you know, her brother, her roommate and her uh, brother's boyfriend. It just kind of like hits these very generic kind of tropes of addiction in film, like the portrayal of that. It's like, okay, you're down on your luck because of this. You're in uh, a 12-step program. You meet a bad influence in the 12-step program that's basically using it as like a scouting mission to find people that he can manipulate. Yeah. And then you get into an argument with the person whose house you're living in, and then you get kicked out. And then you—it re- kind of feels like it's going through this checklist of a very average portrayal of addiction in film, to a degree that it's like if you're going to choose to tell that story, which as you said, is perfectly at home within the Hellraiser universe, there needs to be qualities of it that are depicted that are as genuine as you know his previous portrayals of depression and guilt. In his other films. And this just felt like it was like, oh, we're going to kind of take that uh, foundational narrative of like the Evil Dead remake and just use that as the basis for this film, Mm -hmm. because we can see how that would fold into the Cenobites and everything. But even if I was to compare this to like the Evil Dead remake that film at least feels like it's a little bit more going through the, even if, again, it, there might be some elements of the portrayal of Addiction Evil Dead that feel a little stereotypical. Um, in this film, it, again, it just, it feels so sanitized that I was like, you could have dug a lot deeper. I feel like there needed to be a deeper cut because then, you know, you would be more invested in these people. Whereas yeah. it always kind of just felt like set dressing for this character. Not that I couldn't, you know, Feel sympathy for them, or you know, be invested in them by the end of the movie. But it is this thing that it kind of feels like they're just playing a role rather than living a role, if that makes sense. And that's not uh, that's not taking a shot at the actress's performance, but it's more so just you know what she was given to work with. It doesn't feel like there was a whole lot of depth there. Yeah, um, which sucks because that's kind of just my take on it.
1: Yeah, no, that's a hundred percent, and it sucks because I thought her performance overall was like pretty, pretty good. I, I I think it would have been like, I don't know. It could, it could have really gone because of those moments where it, it does briefly feel kind of true to life. She really does a great, like a wonderful job um, in those scenes. So it's, it's sad that, I don't know, there weren't any, <laughs> she did she didn't get to do more of that basically.
0: <laughs> yeah. I think that, you know, she does a fine job, I think. Um, but again, it's more so just, you know, it almost feels like the performance she could have given was kind of, it was almost like she had the rug pulled out from under her because of what she was working with. It's kind of like this surface level examination of addiction. So if anything, when, you know, she has these conflicts with people in her life, as you said, it doesn't seem as if she is really in the throes of addiction just because of the sort of scenarios that she's in, in this film, right? I think that a lot of it's implied, but it's not done. So with the degree that you can really feel like, Oh, this is leading up to her relapsing because again, she seems far too put together before, you know, anything about, you know, the boyfriend who ends up being a scumbag. um, It seems like, Oh, well she met a guy in AA. These people just don't like the fact that he's in AA too. But, you know, of course we're going to learn more about him and his influence on her. But it just it feels orchestrated in a way where it's like they have more information on this character than what the audience has been given. Almost, um, you know, and I just didn't find that that depiction was as, I guess, informative or just as rooted in her character as it should have been. It should have been this thing that's very uncomfortable. It shouldn't have felt like oh well, she was dealing with addiction, but now she's on the road to. Her it should have been this thing where it's like. As deep in the trenches, if you will, as you know, Rebecca Hall's character was with her grief in the Nighthouse, yeah, Um, because that's so central to her character. And if you're going to have your protagonist be an addict, you need to attack that with the same level of involvement into the narrative in the world, I found as he has in his previous films. Well, and even if he didn't, if they
1: didn't want to, if they didn't want to approach the themes of addiction in a way that felt ham fisted. But in in terms of like, you know, depicting your go through all the, you know, the usual kind of like stations of the cross that you see like fictional characters who are alcoholics go through, then what they could have done, because I I do think that, (laughs) uh, I think that the box kind of takes the, becomes a placeholder for her her addiction to pills. Um, And that could have had, that could have been the, Depicted more like a kind of a her spiraling out of out of control and losing her control to um, like losing her agency in terms of this um, this obsession about the box and um, where it came from, what it could do. Um, That could have showcased as as she kind of goes down that that spiral. It could have showcased more of the person that we didn't see before she, you know, kind of went on the path of, of sobriety. That could have been an interesting way to do it. But um, I don't know. It. I think that's the thing that keeps this movie from, uh, you know, it, it, and that's what keeps it at a solid seven out of 10 for me, <laughs> you know, like it, it could have been great if they had nailed those themes and instead everything, everything else is like, just solid enough to I don't know, make me not become really angry <laughs> because because normally
0: that type of shit really uh you know aggravates me. Um I would I would say it for me it's inoffensive in its portrayal of addiction, but at the same time, I can't not recognize that they could have done a lot more in yeah. the depiction of that. Um I think that you know if It had been any lesser of a uh, portrayal of what we got, it would have been borderline on like sort of offensive at like how little is clearly being put into the depiction. But like you said, I think that you know what stops this film from being even more of a standout this year for me is that human element. Um, But at the same time, I think that you know there's so much more elements of the film that they really knocked out of the park um, that I think are what made it such a standout for me still, you know, as a Hellraiser film. Um, And, you know, you mentioned the box, right? And I'm curious, you know, this film does something really smart, which is expanding the lore of the Cenobites and of the box itself, but I didn't find that it was nearly as laborious as it could have been, right? It doesn't feel like we're getting sort of a dissertation on the Cenobites and on the Leviathan and all these things. Um, how did you feel that they did on expanding that lore in the box? I thought they did a really great job of walking that tightrope between um,
1: kind of paying homage to the uh, the lore that came before it in the original stories and creating its own kind of, um, like taking that sandbox and creating something new out of the materials that are in it, you know? Um, I thought that the idea that the, the box isn't always a box, that it's these constantly shifting, um, configurations was like, you know, visually it worked really well. And just in general, the way that they, um, Kind of like crafted the device and showed the 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 way that it it worked as an actual puzzle box or puzzle device was was really cool. I kind of loved the. I didn't know how I felt at first about this, the idea that there's like essentially a stinger that comes out of the box once you've solved it that um, that cuts you and essentially marks you as you know marks you for your meeting with, with with the Cenobites. Um, I didn't know how I felt about that, but the more I think about it, the more it reminds me a little bit of the, the, um, the Kronos device in, in Kronos, Guillermo del Toro's first film. Um, Absolutely.
0: That's a great show.
1: Yeah. And it, and it has, it's not just the fact that it marks you, you, you get the sense that there's some sort of hallucinogen or something that's, that's pumped into you after you've been marked that, um, allows you to see into this other dimension that, you know, these entities live in. Um, Cause I, I kind of, I didn't know how I felt about it at first, but then I loved the uh, the, 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 the hospital scene where um, the lady who's who has, you know, been marked by the box is in a wheelchair and she's being wheeled down a hallway. And she can see the like the sunlight and everything start to dim outside as as the you know the walls start shifting and whatnot. And she's seeing all this, but the people who are with her aren't. And I thought that was super cool, like super chilling. Um yeah, in general, yeah, I, I thought they just did a really interesting job of of um of making it their own. And and so much so that like I just I've been thinking so much lately about all of the, um, all of the like remakes, legacy sequels, um, prequels, like all the things that have been made lately where it's like, you know it just it's a new movie but it has the uh, you know, the title of the original and <laughs> that that type of thing. and and this one, I th- I think I might like this one the most with maybe Candyman taking a second in, in terms of, um, reality, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's, it's yeah, um, not,
0: not resting too heavily on the laurels of, uh, the franchise's success. Right. I think yeah. that it, especially this one, like the building upon on the lore and the configurations, I like that new aspect to it. Right. And um, even if <laughs> Maybe that box is a little too easy to solve, where everybody ends up solving it. it always uh, just so seems it, too their hands
1: on easy. It. <laughs> <It's, it's laughs>
0: but it, at, to your point, though, right? I think that it's a smart incorporation of that fact that everybody that touches it can, because of the way in which the box is weaponized in the film. Right? Because the movie opens by introducing us to this, you know, madman billionaire Mister Voight, who basically his entire life. He has just been seeking out the most extravagant forms of pleasure in these things and finally stumbled upon the box where if he gets a certain number of sacrifices to the box, then he gets an audience with the Leviathan, which then will give him some kind of gift, which again, gift is going to be in big air quotes, knowing uh, (laughs) our friends, the Cenobites. But what I like about that is that it shows that a person needs to sacrifice their humanity in the sense that they themselves are setting a trap for their victims right because if he is going to be doing the configuration himself he's going to mark himself so he basically lures these prostitutes in that you know are transfixed with the the majesty of not only his home in the berkshires which you know I'm going to avoid the berkshires next time I'm in western mass but <laughs> it's also the type of thing where it shows that you know it's preying upon members of society that People aren't going to realize are missing or won't care, right? I think a character even says that at one point that several people have been going missing over the years that are associated with him in the box, and nobody cares because it's usually sex workers. Um, but what I like about you know the dynamic between the humans and the cenobite counterparts is that it kind of just shows how they have to give up their humanity to become basically what they view as you know the next evolution of. What people are or next evolution of you know what being an entity in this world is like. Um, and I thought that also just the way that Bruckner introduces all of these things doesn't feel overbearing. Um, it doesn't feel like we have to get a great deal of exposition about the Cenobites, even later in the film. You know, they talk about what the different configurations are, but again, it doesn't feel like we're getting this dissertation on the Cenobites and their ideology and these things. It's just These are real fucking weird looking creatures that want to (laughs) spread out pain that they justify as being new delights of pleasure. But at the end of the day, like there are no Cenobites showing up unless people are not, you know, being the forefront of them coming into our world of invading our world through their own shortcomings, whether it be the various things that uh, these characters deal with.
1: That's the thing that makes the the franchise so unique is that this is something that you bring to yourself. Um, Mm. It's not... Uh, something I really loved about uh doug bradley's portrayal um was that he's he's just so matter of fact um it's it's like yeah. well i'm not he, he's not necessarily a bad guy it's like this is the thing that i do this is this you you asked for this and and i came like it's 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 not there's no they don't even feel that malevolent in in the um in in the in the uh The original film, Um, yeah, it's 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 yeah, it's such a cool idea, man. I really loved. Oh shoot, I'm forgetting. I'm I'm blanking on her name now. Who played uh, Pinhead in this film? Oh, uh, Jamie Clayton. Oh my God, yes, Jamie Clayton. I loved her performance so much in this. I I thought um, like she made she she made it her own. So like she brought this like regal quality to to pinhead that was incredible and this almost um like there's a playfulness that comes into bradley's performance later on that feels hammy and out of place Hmm. there's a a similar playfulness in her performance but it feels terrifying
0: (laughs) Yeah, you know she does such a great job of carrying the torch from doug bradley right i think that there's, of course, if you're going to have the hell priest, it's going to have, you know, the pins in the head and whatnot. But that really is where her portrayal like departs from the classical portrayal of Pinhead, right? I think that really does not only the um, aesthetical differences to the priest's, you know, um, own form of suffering, right, is not wearing this like BDSM garb, but it's just like flayed flesh, but then has this Uh, almost like golden tracheotomy or something in her throat, which is just like very uncomfortable to look at. But as you said, like really embodying, I would almost say like a more sort of sensual nature of just the way in which discussing pain and pleasure aspect of their gifts and whatnot. And the fact that, you know, just the way in which they basically, you know, kind of Play with their prey or interrogate their prey before finally, uh, you know, bestowing the gift uh, upon them. Yeah. Um, I found to be really, really well done and just very uh, like doesn't have a great deal of dialogue. And this is something we were joking about, uh, before we were recording. Like so many of these films that have really great villains, our one critique is that there's not enough of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and like I think that Jamie Clayton could have I could have used definitely more of her in this just because she has so many lines. That stand out, but they're you know few and far between, I suppose. Uh, but lines like "there's so much more the body can made can be made to feel than you know uh, salvation." I think is what they're talking about at the time. But like little lines of dialogue and the way in which she delivers them are so chilling because it's portrayed so genuinely. Like this is somebody that of course has fully bought into this other realm of uh, thresholds of pleasure and experiences that what they're saying is monstrous. In what their intention is, but they view it; they believe what they're saying, right? Because they've ascended,
1: you know, they've they've ascended to that plane, and it's like we couldn't possibly understand what it is to to be what they are, because we just we just are on a totally different level below them. Um, yeah, yeah, no, there's a wonderful line she has: uh, uh, "Enough is a myth," mm. which I think <laughs> like kind of nails. This idea of, of of it's I guess it's not just a it's not just obsession, but um
0: it's really their identity. Yeah. Yeah. Point. I mean just not knowing. the basis to stop. for
1: their reality. It's it's that's the whole, I think, like connecting thread is just you just they find that every they find the person who I think I guess there's an element to that in everybody of not not knowing when to stop. Um Or being unable, knowing when, but being unable to, because you want to see what, like, well, if I keep going, if I keep pushing it, like, what's on the other end there? And it's, it's, yeah, it's this interesting, almost like commentary too on, like, we're we're told, like, in the West that, like, push yourself past your limits, you know what I mean, and and push, break those thresholds, and you'll do great things. And it's kind of this, like, I don't know, it's this dark reflection of that. Which I find really really cool.
0: Well, I think that it's great too that there's a portrayal of the Cenobites in this that you can reflect on to the human counterparts, right? Whereas in the original films uh, I I did not pick up on that at all or didn't s- feel that sense of it. I f- viewed them more as these malevolent beings that are taking that have are completely devoid of their humanity just because of, you know, what they are doing not only to people, what they've done, what they've had done to themselves. And while, you know, they did talk of this talk of pain and pleasure in these things, it always felt just more malevolent in the sense that it was like they're doing this because they're enjoying doing it. Mm-hmm. Whereas in this, again, like talking about what you had just mentioned, um I found that the depiction of the cenobites, they retain some of their humanity for the very things that you're saying, right? This idea that we have to keep pushing the thresholds, we have to keep exploring the new realm of, uh, you know, how far we can push ourselves and those things, which is a human quality that you can, you know, show on uh, that character Voight or even our protagonist, right? Uh, The idea that these are two people for two different reasons that couldn't stop pursuing something, Voight to the point where, you know, we'll get to him, uh, (laughs) what his (laughs) gift was but you know, with Riley and her, uh, you know, her addiction and whatnot and how the box becomes her new addiction.
1: Yeah. It's this weird thing. I don't know if it's just, (laughs) I'm like a sports fan. So, you know, that's, that's such a theme in sports. Like the, the, the heroes are the people who didn't quit and went, went well past what they, you know, what we all thought was humanly possible. And, and, and they, they won the big game. And, and that's like, that's, (laughs) that's that's the, the part that's so desirable about it, right? But then there's the stuff underneath. like um, like I grew up a, a huge fan of the 90s um, Chicago Bulls. Um, and Michael Jordan was this like squeaky, clean, like godlike figure in in media and in society at the time. And then it's only later you start to understand <laughs> like all these guys who are who are able to win at such a high level are wired differently than us. Like they're almost sociopaths. And they'll do absolutely anything that they <laughs> have yeah. to do um, in terms, you know, in terms of sacrificing and, and whatnot, but they'll also do some sh- shady shit um, to, to win because they just can't stop themselves. They have to get, they have to break through to that other, you know, to that other side. Um,
0: well, that, yeah. that reminds me of that uh, within the last few, I would say within the last year or two, there was that Robert Patrick quote, uh, or, excuse me, Robert Pattinson quote, where he talks about you know you never hear about method acting from people that are you know not assholes or something <laughs> along those lines. Where he's talking basically about the fact that you know you always hear about these great method actors because they're a nightmare to deal with on set because of the way they treat people. Um, you never hear about method acting when someone is like a decent person around other people because there's that. It's the same thing. Where, you know, some people are willing to sacrifice too much of themselves maybe to achieve something, whereas others, you know, have some of that perspective. And that's not to say one performance is going to automatically be better than the other, but it's this idea of, like, how much of yourself are you willing to give up for something else? Um, and I think that, that that tracks with the Cenobite's depiction in this. And there's something um, so alluring
1: way- to that, you know? Yeah. Like, wonder if there's some I, – I think there's something – very human about wondering like how far could I go? How much would mm. I be willing to of myself would I be willing to lose to reach whatever destination it is that um is something that's complete? you know a, a very limited experience for most people mm. yeah. um yeah oh
0: what did you think what did you think of the uh the other designs of the Cenobites you know we have chatterer who is you know a returning fan favorite Classic. but i'm pretty sure i'm pretty sure all the other ones were original or yeah. you know they were renditions perhaps of some of the other cenobites but what did you find what did you think of their uh you know their uh, design um they are all wonderful i just <laughs> there's uh, there's they're very um
1: part of the i i i've also watched this movie three times now and and something i love about it is that there's just you just notice all these little Details that you didn't notice before with the way that um, with the way that each of them are, are designed. Um, I feel like it's probably some. I feel like they probably resemble more what was in the Hellbound Heart, or kind of like vaguely described in 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 the novella. And in terms of finding like the beauty in in um, the like <laughs> in things that are deplorable and hard to look at it really does a wonderful job of, of, uh, of, of doing that. Cause I, I love the, the original designs with the, like the BDSM lever leather and the, uh, of the, of the Cenobites in the, in the original films. But, um, there's, this is just, it's hard to take your eyes off of them to the point where uh, that, that final moment at the end, where we see the Cenobite transformation of, of Void um, is so
0: beautiful and grisly at the same time. It's um yeah. Yeah. Oh man. There is a wonderment with which they present these again, these atrocities that have been done to the human body Um, that, you know, even if I've seen it three times, it still feels like the thing where my brain is slow to process what I'm looking at. Cause it's just, it's so monstrous. Right. Wonderment is a perfect that, word of saying or per- yeah. perfect word to use. Yeah. <laughs> like there's that creature early on that you hear before you see because of its heavy raspy breathing and it turns the corner and you're like, Oh, what the fuck? It's got like, it's skin that's wrapped around its face. So it's breathing is obscured. It's arms are bound and then you get that back shot of it and its entire spine is just exposed and has these needles that are holding the skin. Like it's so fucking deranged. And it's, it's funny, you know, you mentioned liking the original designs of the Cenobites and they're like BDSM attire. And they wanted to do, they originally were going to do that for this film. Um, but after Bruckner was consulting with uh, Barker for that, they basically said like, that stuff is too in mainstream media to be affecting. So yeah. it's like, what's the next best thing? You just have all of the skin flayed off of these Make creatures skin in these the, horrific ways. Yeah.
1: There's a, um, at one point in the film, well, like around the climax where, um, uh, We get a there's a kind of a close up shot of the lower part of Pinhead as as she's walking towards Void, and you Mm. can hear the sound of her her skin. Like she's essentially, it looks like she's wearing a duster, but it's made up of like of her own skin, and you hear it like Mm. sliding along the floor, and it just the visual itself is really um kind of stunning the sound just oh like I I I watched the first time I watched this I was I was homesick I'd had food poisoning and I normally I think we were talking about this before we started recording like I'm not someone who's very squeamish at all I think I told you about eating like eating ramen while watching the sadness and being like this is fine
0: <laughs> or did. like
1: eating a subway sub while, uh, while at prenatal classes and watching birthing videos while like other dudes were like crying and just be like this is okay this is <laughs> this is fine um this this movie actually made me like squeamish like the it, it actually got a uh, this a very physical reaction out of my stomach in a way that not many movies
0: can. You can't not wince at it, especially like at the end when there's one of those Cenobites, one of the newer ones, and like holds up his arms and then his arms basically split in half. That fucking destroyed So they, destroyed look, so they me. look like, yeah, like even watching it last night with one of my roommates, we were just both like, what the fuck? Oh. Like, it's so depraved, but it's it's the type of thing that you're like, I could see Clive Barker wanted to have done this in the original film if they were able to, right? And so to have these deviations from the Cenobites in the original films and have them deliver in a way that you could see them being part of this universe, I think is, you know, it's so easy to just have a monster that's fucked up, but to have one that have multiple that are so singularly fucked up and only a way (laughs) things are in the Hellraiser universe, like that is so wonderful to see because, you know, again, if you had had someone that was not as respectful of the source material as, you know, we've gotten countless examples of that with a lot of those DTV sequels where it's just doing exactly what they had done before, but worse. Yeah. In this, you know, taking creative liberties, I always want to see from directors so long as they have the wherewithal to deliver something that has remnants of the source material itself. And this, you know, again... It feels like things that you would only read about in the Hellraiser books, and to see them come to life on screen um, is just—I mean, it's wonderful. Even if it is uh, again (laughs) as depraved as it is. Yeah. Let's uh, let's talk about some like kills or imagery that really stood out to you. Uh, They can be you know small, the smallest of moments or the biggest of moments.
1: Oh, let's see. That opening scene does a really great job of. uh, Oh yeah. uh, uh, From an audible standpoint or audio Mm. standpoint of um just the sound of everything that's happening off camera at first (laughs) um of the the hooks entering that young man's body and his screams and and obviously the chain sounds and then when it's the close-up on on uh Voight while he's trying to get a you know a meeting with leviathan and you just see in the background out of focus the yeah. the young guy being hoisted up by the chains and and more chains like landing in them that uh oof,
0: that was, that was a masterful opening that was a great opening it, it was one of those things where it was like the first time i watched it i was like man i want to see more of that but then i immediately corrected myself and was like no If they lead too strong early on, then it's going to be this thing where it's like, are they going to be able to recapture something as iconic and as sinister as that? And I just love how that shot is composed every time I rewatch this, because it's like it's giving you the remnants of what you know is coming. Yeah. And then, you know, that really does kind of make you wonder, are they going to be able to one up that? And the fact that they're able to one up moments like that throughout the film, I mean, that it really is a really strong opening that doesn't show too much too soon one thing that I really, really liked was the Cenobites invading our world. Yeah. Like there's so many moments where, you know, you have the uh, walls shifting, you have, you know, the, the labyrinth uh, that is their world, you know, the walls raising or moving and, you know, the way in which the lighting pours in before you see the Cenobites, there's kind of this blue uh, phantasm sort of lighting that creeps into the scene that sort of, that is the first thing to invade our world. And then there's, I, I don't know how best to describe it it's almost like a bell chiming kind of Oh I like love that sco- that that cue that oh they're here they're near uh, I love that every single time I never yeah. tired of that the sound of bells in the distance
1: that's directly from like the first the opening scene yeah. in Hellbound Heart which is wonderful um that van scene where oh my god yeah where yeah. the the nora character who i only remember her name because my wife's named nora um <laughs> normally i forget every person's name in in every movie that i ever watched it's awful um
0: but that, that's in my notes yeah not to break the uh you know the, the the fourth wall but like my notes for each episode i am atrocious with names as you know people have probably heard me butcher many a name on here uh much to my uh, much to my embarrassment, but I have to literally next to the character notes. I have to say what the, like who they are, like Riley, protagonist, Trevor, <laughs> scumbag boyfriend, uh, like little notes like that. Just so I can keep track of all those names. But sorry, I interrupted you. Oh, that's fine. It's it's just but it's,
1: you know the the scene where um, the van is uh, transforming, and she's being pulled essentially like pulled out of it into. Um, the uh, the realm of the Cenobites, the like labyrinth la- the labyrinthian world that they that they live in, like that was, I I I'll never get tired of watching that transition. That was so cool.
0: Yeah, I mean the the contrast between you know the van extending to this abnormally long length, but nobody else realizes. Yeah. But also, what I love is in the background you have the wilderness. Um, you know, drenched in that neon red. Yeah. And then she ends up right in their world and, uh, has a really, really terrific scene with, uh, the priest. And, you know, not only has this, uh, the, the chains, you know, flying through her and holding her up in the air, but then, you know, the priest starts sticking needles, through the needle through the esophagus and everything. And it's fucking brutal. And, uh, incredible. Oh man.
1: Yeah. And there, um, there's just some shots that I still think, like, I love the, uh, the far sh- like the the long shots of of pinhead just standing in the courtyard in the moonlight um oh, yeah, yeah just waiting patiently for because yeah you know the whole th- that that was something i really really loved was the the uh the kind of the mythology of this cage that voight builds around his uh yeah that rounds his his around his premise to um to to keep I don't know. Well, you know, that's the trap that he builds. I'm, just, I'm, I'm obviously we're in major spoiler territory earlier yeah, than this. No, spo-
0: but, spoilers are fine. Yeah. What did you think of Voight? Um, I I like the second part of his involvement in the film. Right. I think that I, I was actually the next thing I was going to bring up was you know him being the example of what the Cenobites' gift is. Right. Yeah. And you know he was somebody that is obsessed with pleasure, and so when he gets an audience with the Leviathan, he basically wants. Uh, never-ending pleasure or the next threshold of pleasure, but in, of course, the Cenobite's uh, gift. Uh, and, you know, the air quotes around that will be apparent in a moment. Um, he basically has this, this fucked up, like, golden machine that gets basically skewered into his chest. Yeah. And it's a machine that his nerves run through. And every, I don't know, like, 30 seconds or 60 seconds, the machine starts grinding all of his nerves. So he just has this unbelievable sensation of pain of, you know, his nerves being grinded. It's like his
1: nerves are like the, the chain, the bike chain. And, in, in and, yeah. you know, yeah, it's uh, yeah. and It's, do you know, it's really funny about that. So I completely bought into that. I was just like, yeah, magic. It's just, it's just, you know, it's, it's hell magic. And, and, and I was, I had no qualms with that. But then when we when we see him in the light for the first time fondly, I'm like, so you're fucking telling me that in the six years that since the, of the opening of this of this movie, when we're 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 basically assumed that he gets, you know, impaled to this thing that he's still shaving. He only has a <laughs> five, five o'clock shadow and his hair is barely even that long. And it's been six, six years. This guy's nerves. He could barely like he can't sleep. He can't really like he can't he can barely function because this thing keeps uh you
0: know And they won't let him die
1: too. That's the other thing. And it right? won't let Is him
0: die, yeah. But he's still cutting his hair, still still getting a shave. <laughs> Funny enough, um, you know, when he's first introduced in this when they're in the house, right? They, you know, they track down all this stuff, they go to his house because they want to try to bring back Riley's brother, who, you know, has been basically killed by the Cenobites and they want to lure her in to give her the option of trying to resurrect him, which we're almost positive would have, oh, you know, yeah. uh, equally fucked up results. But when they first show him with that thing in his chest, cause he, we find out that, you know, he basically has recruited Trevor to bring these people here to be victims for the, uh, for the box. You know, he's wearing a white, just kind of like dress shirt And then in the next scene that we see him when he has that thing in his chest, he's got a suit jacket on over it, but the suit jacket has a cut in the back of it so the machine can fit through it. Like, that was, it was either a goof or it just shows like he's paying respect to the Leviathan for that audience. But like, it was so, it took me out when I watched it again the other night. Yeah.
1: I thought it was just like, this is a guy who's used to looking good and he's not going to let some goddamn (laughs) hell machine. That's keeps him keeps him in agony 24-7. It's gonna it's he's you know, he might not be able to control that, but he can control if he's wearing a goddamn suit jacket.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I love
1: that. You know, it's <laughs> funny we... you mentioning the Riley part, or not Riley, um the, the brother. Um yeah. I think maybe that's one of the things in terms of the um in terms of the the theme of addiction, I, I think that's one of the things that maybe bothered me about this movie was it goes from at first she's like, you know, there's something about the box that is drawing her in, but then it becomes, I have to save my brother. Right. And I just, I think it would have worked a lot better if it was, you know, it wasn't about her saving her brother. It was just about her being drawn into the, the obsession of, with the box. Um, It just, he, I don't know. Their relationship at first was interesting, but then it just kind of, is there and that's supposed to be your motivation and i don't know if it's because like they're worried that like i don't know maybe they thought that the audience wouldn't sympathize with someone who is struggling from addiction but they'll sympathize with someone who's just trying to save their brother you know what i mean yeah. and and that, that's a that's a really great point which that kind of sucks i don't know if that, you know i don't know if that was like a studio thing or
0: it would have had such a more powerful ending to the film, I think, in that, you know, eventually she gets the box and she has the option of receiving one of the Cenobites gifts and she just says no to it, right? And I don't, it's not that I have a problem with her rebuking the gift, right? That makes a lot of sense because she's seen what those those gifts look like. yeah. But it would have been so much more powerful if it was the type of thing where the sole focus is on her addiction and they offer her the ability to get rid of her addiction, right? Or or quote, quote, cure her addiction. But, you know, she says no because she is willing to, you know, deal with that struggle on her own in a way that, you know, is living with sobriety and how it's a constant battle. Um, But I feel that would have been more empowering, right? If it's more about taking ownership over things she can't control, but the willingness to work on it every day, conceivably for the rest of her life versus – Like I I guess I can live without my brother being dead. Like that element again is like that was kind of just feels like studio notes because it's not indicative of the depth that Bruckner is willing to go. Typically with his stories that you know dabble in subject matter similar to this. That's a really
1: good point. Instead, it just it's it's like okay, my actions killed my brother, and I'm okay with living with that now but it's like, how did you get to that, that point? It's like, it's like, Oh, during the it course, very quickly during the course of this journey, I've learned that it's better to live with the consequences of your actions than, than, um, you know, try and avoid them. But like uh, that, I don't know, that just doesn't make any sense. It's not like she's looking at what. where does she have the example of someone who was trying to avoid the consequences of their actions. And you know what I mean? Like we don't get any backstory on Voight other than he was somebody who's obsessed with, he was a, you know, billionaire who was obsessed with the occult and, and um, debauchery and stuff. But he's, he's, there's nothing, there's that was, that was it. He's, he's kind of two dimensional in that, in that sense. There's nothing really, we don't get a sense of his motivations. So where the hell does she get to the, I don't know.
0: Yeah. I, I think that, his character so long as he solely exists for that scene where he's got that thing in his chest I'm fine with but yeah as a as the uh, the human antagonist of the film, he's pretty much whatever he's almost nondescript he's so vanilla um, that's also something that I noted um just going back and revisiting the original two films like those Hellraiser as a series has always you know dabbled in sex and shown like the taboo side of things and for this movie again like it just felt like again a little too sterile even in that regard like yeah there's two sex scenes in it but it's like it's just You're barely i don't know yeah it feels very vanilla it's very kind of just like oh hey look we've got two sex scenes in this but again in terms of like capturing one of the core themes of hellraiser or if you go so far to call it like a vibe of hellraiser it almost feels like a very sexless film in a way that's so core to the identity of what Hellraiser is. I would say it needed um, 50% more
1: horniness. It yeah, was, um, exactly. I remember when the, when the trailer came out, we were all, you know, losing our minds over it. And I really loved the trailer, but someone had pointed out that the rating on the trailer was like PG. I think it was PG. And I was like, hmm. Oh fuck. They've, are they make, trying to make a PG Hellraiser? Like how the hell is this going to work? Now it was our, yeah. um, I'm assuming because of the strong gore um but yeah the the sexual aspects of it that 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 was you know prevalent in the first film and and in the second and and then obviously in the
0: novella and and in basically everything that clive <laughs> barker touches um notorious uh horny author which is not something to scoff at <laughs> notorious just horny boy.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um yeah it just was kind of sterile in that that sense i i don't yeah it was that that kind of disappointed me once again the the fund there are so <laughs> there are fundamental things about this film that are like fall on their face failures and i think it speaks to the strength of everything else that it is um something like a movie that i i think is uh has a lot more going for it than what people have been saying, because I, I think a lot of the reactions I saw well, were, well, you know, it's better than most of the sequels, which I feel like it's kind of like, you know, it's just kind of a... It's
0: a backhanded, backhanded compliment. compliment. Really. I mean, the bar was non-existent at this point, right? Yeah. I can watch for the first time uh, Hellraiser Judgment, and I think I like that movie more than most, but that's still a bad movie. Like, it's not a good movie. So the idea that, you know, the bar was basically non-existent and this is what we got, like, I hold this up in much higher regards um, than some of, as you said, some of those other legacy sequels as of late. Um, actually, one scene that I did want to talk about before we wrap up yeah. um, was the creation of the new Leviathan, right? Voigt, you know, he is freed from the machine. Uh, it falls out of his chest and then, you know, his body regenerates only to be skewered by the largest chain uh, known to man yeah. from the Leviathan. And basically he goes up into this other into world god. And, yeah, into <laughs> god itself and uh basically has his skin flayed and mutilated to create the next Cenobite. um how wild of a scene was that i loved it i i that's
1: my favorite part of the movie i think not just because it's it's kind of the first well we we i guess we it, i i i love anything that involves getting to see how the sausage is made you know like, um, you know, that opening little the little montage at the beginning of Nightmare on Elm Street where you see Kruger making his glove. Like, I, I love shit like that. Um, but it, it also just the the light that he's bathed in and the expression on his face. Like it's he's got this look on his face. It's like, you know, straddling the realm of agony and orgasm. Basically, yeah. and and the way that the the I don't know, the the way that the the flesh kind of peels away but isn't discarded, like it's it's like he's being transformed into this horrifying thing of beauty. And then when the last bits of his his old self are gone and when he blinks and his eyes are like the you know the dead eyes of a of a Cenobite and his breathing changes. Um is just so chilling and i I don't know man it was awesome it i i thought it was a little too on there's always the oh they they gotta make the you know they gotta be looking like they're on a crucifix i always find (laughs) that stuff just too on the nose but i was so blown away by that sequence that i i was able to forget it
0: (laughs) yeah i think that that scene nails the contrast that is you know um really the Hellraiser brand of dabbling between portraying something as angelic, but also horrifying, right? And I think that that scene, you know, for as grotesque as it is, right, as the the flesh peels away and it's so precise and there's no blood and there's no ripping out organs or anything, it's just, it's and not adding anything other than, you know, those needle pins to hold the flesh in place. Like the fact that they're creating him into this abomination from his own body and not, you know, like, that's the one thing that I like about the transition from the original designs to this is that, you know, when you discard the the garb that they wore in the original films, you're left with just their body being their new costume. Yeah. Um, there's something about that that I don't know. I I appreciate that you can make something monstrous from something that began as, you know, I guess, beautiful, right? Yeah. Just just the human body and then seeing the horrors that you can do with just that and the ways you can manipulate it. Um, That's something that I appreciate about the deviations that they made with the new Cenobites is that, you know, while there are, you know, uh, either homages or building off of things that had already been established, they're able to just show such a wide swath of ways in which they can just mutilate the human body in these really, really despicable, but uh, creatively I suppose, satisfying creature <laughs> designs.
1: I love, too, that their genitalia are all, I think, pretty much gone. I, I think everyone had that, like, the, the larynx thing that Pinhead has is, yeah. I'm pretty sure, in everyone's crotches. Because I know at mm-hmm. one point you see, so. you kind of see his dong at the beginning mm-hmm. of the transformation, and then it cuts back and like dong's gone so i'm assuming it peeled away like is maybe it peeled away and went up his own butt or something which would i feel like would be something he would want he's so egotistical. um but i love that because it's like oh you don't need those flesh those flesh things those are for humans like the sensations we will experience will you know make what those things can give you just you know feel like a sneeze
0: or something it's (laughs) yeah yeah. Well, I mean, it, it's also more accurate to um, what Clive Barker had been writing about in, you know, his novels, right? The depiction of the Cenobites, the, the you know, now being able to really, I suppose, show them in the manner that he probably intended from the start, right? The fact that there's a female pinhead, right? I mean, people initially were like, you know, of course, the, the minority that ha- tend to have the loudest voice on the internet, which we don't have to focus on really. But it's like people initially latched onto that fact and were like oh, they've destroyed Hellraiser, this is nothing. But then it's like, if you've read anything about, if you've read The Hellbound Heart, which is what the original film is based on, right? It's that Pinhead is depicted as being this, having a feminine voice and yeah. really in, and sexless in that regard, right? So the idea that that wouldn't be, and there have been female Pinheads in uh, the comic series, I believe. Yeah. Um, and so like, that's not a deviation from the source material, especially when the film is, being uh, in collaboration with the original creator to a certain extent. Get the fuck Um, over it, basically. Yeah, yeah, there's always that. (laughs) Uh, Where at the same time, like, who gives a fuck? Oh, yeah, nobody that uh, has a thought in their brain. But I just am really appreciative of the fact that I could have you on to chat about this film with as much enthusiasm as I did, even if there are elements of it that we both agreed don't land for us and are detractors. At the end of the day, though, I think it's safe to say that this is, a resounding return to Hellraiser um, in a way that, you know, somebody like me that isn't in love with the majority of the films, isn't, you know, even in super high regards with maybe the first two films, films I enjoy, but I wouldn't say they're my favorites. And I still enjoyed this as much as I did. Uh, and yeah, I think that it was great to have you back to chat about Hellraiser. Yeah, man. Thanks for uh, having me on listening to my rambles,
1: listening to me get really dark and uncomfortable, just like the movie. Um, yeah, it was, a it was
0: very well, your insight was very much appreciated. And I, uh, I, I feel lucky you were comfortable enough to share some of your experience. Cause I can only, you know, I can only speculate sometimes in certain subject matter that I talk to. So for you to, uh, feel comfortable in sharing stuff, uh, I think was definitely welcomed and uh, helped me have more insight into, you know, him succeeding in the subject matter that he tackles more so than just my being like, Oh, I view that as being realistic. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, man no nope, no problem it's funny i saw this gay this uh little meme that was like someone saying you know thank you so much for being so brave to share your story with me and then the person who's sharing the story thinks like uh, i'm just really uncomfortable with silence and and have a really uh difficult time understanding what's appropriate to talk about with strangers <laughs> 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 So, I yeah. definitely
0: relate to that in, uh, <laughs> in some ways, <laughs> but, uh, as always, man, it's a pleasure chatting with you. And I, uh, I look forward to reading, uh, anything that you have coming out in the future. Thanks, man. Good, good being here. Thank you for listening to another episode of daily horror habit. You can follow the show on Twitter at daily horror pod, or give me a follow at not funny J. Thanks again for listening and I'll see you guys next week.